Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome back Sean Bowen, president and CEO of Lima Oncology. Great to have you back on, Sean. It's very nice to be back again, Rahul. Thank you for the opportunity. Of course. For folks that are listening, Sean was on episode 130 back late in 2022. So if you'd like to learn more about Sean's personal journey to Alima, feel free to listen to that. Today, we'll be covering what's happened from the last time we spoke to Sean to today, Q4 of 2023. So to kick us off, Sean, would love if you could provide us an update on all the exciting things that have been going on at Alima. Yeah, thank you very much, Rahul. It has indeed been a really exciting period of time from late last year now as we moved into Q4 or through Q4 of this year. We've progressed our lead program very nicely. That was called OP1250 when we last spoke. It now has a name. It's palazestrant, and this is a complete estrogen receptor antagonist. For context, endocrine therapies are really the backbone standard of care for estrogen receptor positive, HER2 negative metastatic breast cancer, which is by far the majority of advanced breast cancer. But we know that the current standard of care is inadequate, either because it's not actually a complete antagonist or because it has pharmacological limitations, isn't orally bioavailable, has limited exposure. And so we really have generated data suggesting that we're addressing that with palazestrin, both as a single agent and also data showing how well we combine with CDK4-6 inhibitors. That's important to move into the first line, advanced from metastatic setting. And then the other thing that we've done is we've expanded on our mission at Olima. Our mission is to improve therapies for cancers occurring primarily in women. And a couple months ago, we presented our initial preclinical data on a program on a new target called CAT6 which is a validated clinical target and also active in estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. So that expands our pipeline and we hope to enable an IND filing next year. Wonderful. Sean, your stock is up over 500% so far this year, which is in stark contrast to the vast majority of publicly traded biotech stocks. And obviously the private capital markets have also been significantly hit during this time. I'm curious how you've been navigating these really challenging times and how the times on the capital markets informed the strategy and focus at Alima. We're up just short of 500 right now. You're a CEO as well. You get to be a stickler for these little details, but I'm hoping we've got some nice time left and lots of data to share as well before the end of the year. Yeah, this has been a really challenging time for biotech. Look, as we are edging toward up five fold the XBIs down more than 15%. As we all know, this is the longest biotech bear market that has existed since the beginning of biotech. And I think we can all sit down and say, gosh, maybe the halcyon days of 2019, 2020 were a little overly exuberant. But I have to say, I think we can equally say this is well overcorrected. And that's challenging to manage through. The way that we have chosen to do it is 
actually from the beginning, from going public in 2020, was really try not to get ourselves overextended. Very careful fiscal management. This is a partnership really between primarily Shane Kovacs, my chief financial and operating officer, but the whole executive team. In March, we had to do a restructuring, as many companies have. And a lot of that share price appreciation that you described occurred after that, really started to pick up in May. So it's really been about six months. So we've managed very tightly. We've held our hiring. We've used really a hybrid system where we have necessary in-house expertise, also rely on external resources, CROs and partnerships quite a bit, limit our footprint in terms of office space and commitment to that. And we've been very fortunate. We have been able actually in this environment a couple of months ago to raise a $100 million in a private placement at market, get access to up to another $50 million in debt under favorable terms. We haven't had to access that yet, but it's there if we need it. And we continue to manage very tightly. I think that fiscal discipline is necessary. To be blunt, we've been greatly aided by excellent data. Yeah. And certainly during this time, the focus has been on those companies that are able to generate compelling clinical data. Curious how that compares to years past, in your opinion, and what do you think the impact of the current market has on future development activities as well? I think you used a key word, Rahul. You said compelling clinical data, right? Right now in this environment, we're fortunate because our data, I think, was, I'm not unbiased, but of course, rightly viewed as pretty remarkable. We saw from ESMO, where we presented our data in late October, we saw companies presenting, I think, interesting clinical data, but maybe not knock it out of the park, but certainly compelling, worth further investment, and yet their share price was punished. So I think it really emphasizes the sort of brittleness of the market right now. And if it's not clinical data, and actually not a fairly decent amount of clinical data, the market just doesn't pay any attention right now. As you well know, that's in contrast to a period when we went public in November of 2020, almost exactly three years ago, things were getting funded that were ideas or platforms. And that's just, it's not happening. The implications of that, I think, honestly, are, look, some of what was funded probably should have never been funded. And there's a correction there. But we have to note that it is an overcorrection at this point. And things that could really, I think, help patients across a variety of therapeutic areas, not just in oncology, are actually getting starved. And I think that is going to be unfortunate going forward. The people who should be worried about it to a large extent, in my opinion, are big pharma, where I spent a lot of my career, because their internal innovation isn't going to keep their market access and their revenues and earnings where it needs to be as they go, as they face patent expiries toward the end of the decade. And, you know, with this biotech market, the cupboard is not getting refilled. Great. Thanks, Sean, for providing that perspective. You mentioned the strength of your clinical data that you recently shared at ESMO, as well as other data. Would love if you could walk us through that data within the context of the unmet need and the opportunity. That yeah, thank you. It was exciting for us. This was our first oral presentation of our data. It's a phase two monotherapy update, 86 patients, all treated at our recommended phase two dose, which is 120 milligrams a day. It's orally, it's given as a pill in the phase three trial. It was as capsules in this phase two. And it's in the later line setting there. So this is non-randomized data, but 
we have enough data now and a follow-up that we can generate PFS curves. We can look at, at clinical benefit rate, which is basically freedom from progression at six months of therapy. And as I said, his first oral presentation, Dr. Nancy Lin, our lead investigator from Dana-Farber, gave a beautiful presentation there. And what we saw in very heavily pre-treated patients, virtually all having had a prior CDK for six inhibitor and 40% fourth line or later, a lot of measurable disease, visceral disease, ESR1 activating mutations. So a real unmet need population. We saw a good tolerability. And then we saw what was pretty remarkable from an efficacy standpoint in all of our patients, a median PFS of 4.6 months. The comparator there is probably the Emerald trial with LSF now or SIRDU, which is the only phase three trial in this setting that's led to an approval of a new agent in this space. And their overall was 2.8 months. I'll add that their patients weren't as heavily pretreated. So we did well with 4.6 versus 2.8. But when you take second, third line, plus or minus chemo, really the LSSTRAN eligible population in our phase two, it's actually 7.2 months. And I think this was what led to the confidence and the reaction. The thing that led to approval was the ESR1 mutant subset in Emerald. And there they showed a median of 3.8 months. That is 1.9 months for the standard of care, airful fast So it's a meaningful improvement. But again, in that population, in the Emerald eligible subset, we were at 7.3 months. And this continued the benefit in clinical benefit rate, PFS at six months, all these things were all quite consistent. So that has set us up for the phase three trial, OPERA 01, in the second, third line setting, which will commence this quarter. And that's going to be our first registration enabling trial. And I think the data from our monotherapy phase two really supports some significant confidence there. That's great. Yeah, indeed, very compelling data. As you think about going into phase three on the heels of such strong clinical data, curious how you think about de-risking the execution of those phase three programs to maximize value creation and how the team is thinking about that as well. I think it's interesting. Obviously, a lot of what we see and hear about in terms of the audience for data like this are the investors, right? Because we need and we're able to raise resources in order to execute that trial. But a big de-risking step for the phase three is showing this data at ESMO to the potential investigators, to the oncologists who are going to participate in the trial and enroll in the trial. And I will say, we and the chair of our steering committee who we spoke to there, Dr. Barbara Pastilli, who's at the Institute Gustave Rossi outside of Paris, after the presentation, we were getting cold calls what is this drug? How do we implement this trial at our institution? So we're very hopeful that the strength of the data will help with the clinical trial execution as well. The other thing is going globally. Obviously, you access sites in Europe and South America and North America, Australia, Asia. So that's the other thing we do. And our collaboration with our CRO has been really fruitful to date. If you're an HR or hiring manager in biotech, you know all too well that the pool of experts seeking full-time employment is shrinking. Filling key full-time positions can be a long, drawn-out ordeal that can slow the pace of execution and growth. 
Throw away the old hiring playbook. Now you can build a biotech dream team in a fraction of that time. Find out how. Visit Clora.com. Clora. Talent optimized. Sean, this is, I think we had mentioned the last time we chatted, this was your first time being in the CEO seat and certainly seems like a very exciting time at Alima. I'm sure there's been lots of ups and downs along the way. Talk to us about how you've been able to navigate those ups and downs being a first-time CEO and what advice you would have for others that are in the seat for the first time. Yeah, as in your seatbelt, that's my first set of advice. I think that there's a lot of perseverance, right? Which is a popular topic all over media and people thinking about how to proceed with whatever endeavor they're undertaking. For us, it was to go back and remind people that the fundamental attributes of Palace Estrin that we had identified as being important to make a best endocrine therapy were sound. And the markets are going to go up and down. As long as you have managed yourself to be able to generate the data to assess if you're achieving those goals, you're in a position to be successful. And you have to, as hard as it is, get people to focus on that mission. It's easier now because the data has said we combine well with CDK4-6 inhibitors. We don't get super additive toxicity. We don't have drug interactions. With access to adequate capital, we'll be able to get into that first line setting as well and not just do the second, third line that we're doing now. Remind them how many patients we're talking about, how big a market opportunity it is. And then the hardest part, just to be blunt, is when you realize that in order to preserve the opportunity to do all this, you have to restructure. Because what you do is you take people who've really contributed to the advancement and you say, you're going to move on to to do something else so that we can keep this going. And then you really have to double down and focus the people who you're keeping at the company that look, you have an obligation. The obligation is to patients and to the people who've worked on this before that we really feel we execute and show what its potential is. Yeah, I've said, Sean. As you think about partnerships, you have a couple of partnerships with Big Pharma in some limited fashion. Mm-hmm. How are you thinking about running things yourself versus partnering with others? And what's the mental model you use to make some of those decisions? I think it's evolved a little bit. I would say at the beginning of the year, we didn't see when we would have access to capital again. Obviously, now we are funded into 2027. That's through the top line data in the OPERA 01 second, third line trial. So in that respect, we feel like we can execute that. That's a $5 billion plus potentially market opportunity in the US alone. So we can make a big impact. And that was supported by our Pfizer and Novartis clinical trial agreements. The Novartis one, we just expanded because the CDK4 six standard of care has evolved from Ibrance to Kiskali based on survival data. I think now we're at a stage where we have that comfort of the core business being something we can fund and execute in order to access that first line setting where we really should be successful. We will suppress the most common resistance mutation to CDK46 plus an AI or estrogen, which is ESR1 activating mutations. We know palazestrin is active against that mutant form of the receptor. And the problem is that we can't do those trials, which could start as early as the end of next year, 
without much more funding. And so it gives us an opportunity now to go out and engage strategic partners and say, look, look, this is a great opportunity. It's a great market for you. It's in a time frame that you need it. And the thing that I think has really flipped is being able to show this data, right? And say, here's the reason to believe. And so that's an exciting time too. But again, when you manage fiscally responsibly, you don't get out over your skis and we really need that commitment in order to be able to access that additional opportunity. Yeah, that makes sense, Sean. Sean, over the last couple of years, we were talking about how this is your first time being a CEO and, and seeing remarkable growth in very challenging times. Would love if we could go a little bit deeper in terms of the support team that you have built around you to help you navigate and be thought partners, perhaps folks that have been through times like this to de-risk some of the execution pieces that you would suggest others also surround themselves with? How have you thought about that being in the seat for the first time? That is a great one, Raul, because boy, you need the support team and you, you need to be very humble and reach out and just know when you don't know or when maybe a different perspective is going to be valuable. Obviously, a great partnership with my executive teams, that is vitally important. And we have great people, Nassim Sashwala, the CMO, is fantastic. David Miles, who's our head of research, non-clinical development, also puts manufacturing is within his purview. Vitally important, Shane Kovacs already mentioned. The board is really important here, and we were very lucky to recruit an outstanding board, and we use their talents. Ian Clark is our chair. I've known him for years, and so that it's really important to be able to connect with him. When we were preparing for the ESMO presentation with Dr. Lin, we had Dr. Sandra Horning, who's one of our board members and was CMO at Roche Genentech, long academic career, former ASCO president. She participated in a practice session in getting ready for this, and her comments were invaluable. Something that I think is really important is getting our investors' perspective on how are these things coming across? How is it being received? In the case of ESMO, we knew that a five-minute presentation, even with a little Q&A, wasn't going to get everything across to every audience. So we did an investor relations separate presentation with Dr. Lin. We're able to share a little more data to make sure we're covering that audience as well. So I think that's really important. I'll just add one thing. Being the spouse or partner of a CEO in this environment for these things, there's not enough thanks that can be even offered for what it's like to have that kind of partnership. So it doesn't get talked about a whole lot, but I think it's vitally important. Yeah, Sean, you're one of the few folks that have called that out. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, we've certainly agree. And you know, it can be a, a very lonely journey, as I'm sure you felt it sometimes. So having someone by your side can really ease the angst that we often feel. Wonderful. Sean, congratulations on all the progress since we last talked. Hard to believe that all that you've achieved in just such a short period of time since we last chatted. And congrats on operating so efficiently in such challenging times. And looking forward to obviously continuing to see the great data, a knock on wood, that continues to come out of Lima. Right. Yeah. Thank you very much for the opportunity and the excellent conversation. And congratulations to you as well on Clora and also how well the webcast is doing. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. 
This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.